quiet. We're going to go see the bees now. So calm your mind. Take a deep breath. And exhale. Put your hands behind your ears and listen. What happened next was incredible. I followed two beekeepers, Amanda and Judith, as they entered the orchard of the Southlands Heritage Farm. We approached what appeared to be a stack of large wooden boxes. A steady line of bees flew back and forth from a hole at ground level. As I watched, Judith lifted off the roof, exposing the colony within. We stood quietly as bees circled around us. It wasn't easy for me to remain calm, but somehow I managed. A moment later, there was an almost imperceptible change in the sound. Judith said they were warning us to go. She replaced the roof, and we pulled back to the pathway around the orchard. Once we were at a safe distance, my head was buzzing with questions. This is episode two of Multipodality. A few days later, we invited Amanda Johnson, a UBC PhD candidate and the head beekeeper at Southlands Heritage Farm, into the studio to learn more about the practice of beekeeping, its origins and broader significance, and the people who do it today. Where does the practice of beekeeping originate? Can you give me a brief history? Well, I know that it's been going on for a very long time. For example, in the fifth dynasty, they found paintings depicting workers blowing smoke into hives and removing the honeycomb. Uh, it was talked about by writers such as Aristotle, uh, Virgil. So it's been going on for a very long time. What is the role or relationship of beekeeping to other aspects of agriculture? They're absolutely intertwined. So there is about 20,000 species of bees. Not all of them are honeybees. Some of them are solitary bees and some of them live in hives. But they're all important pollinators. So without bees, we don't have food. So I think by one person's estimate, 50% of what we eat is because bees have pollinated it. So um, there's absolutely no, no disconnect. Uh, so I, of course, am a small-scale beekeeper. I've only, uh, I've only kept, I only have seven hives, and um, I used to have three hives. So because of that, I, I, I pay a lot of attention to the bees. I, I check on them regularly. And the bees are at an educational farm, so we're opening them a lot to, to, for the purposes of education, to show people how fascinating, how organized, how, how clean they are. So actually, the reason I got into beekeeping, we can talk about this later, was because a farmer called me and said, Amanda, my apple trees are in bloom, I'm out of town, I need a hive to pollinate them, can you do the job? So my, that was it. I had, I had to go get a hive established on a, in an orchard as soon as possible because the apple trees were in bloom. And the farmer knew that without the beehives, he was going to get a very a, a lower yield of apples. There seems to be a divide between commercial and small-scale beekeeping today. What are your thoughts on this? Um, so small-scale, bees are fascinating. There's... They are so interesting. Uh, a lot of people in Vancouver beekeep because they are so interested in it. And uh, I mean, they're not necessarily doing it for making money or huge amounts of honey. I have a friend who keeps bees because she has her own herbal care company. So she uses the wax to make a salve 
uh, for that she sells. So um, small scale versus large scale. There's a huge, I mean, there's a huge need for, for beekeeping. There's a huge market for beekeepers to bring their hives to f- farmers' fields during their the flowering of the crops so that the bees can pollinate. So there's one one side of industrial beekeeping that's devoted towards just pollinating and farmers will pay beekeepers to bring their hives onto their fields. And then there's the other aspect, which is honey production. Uh, I can't, from what I know about ca- most of Canadian honey production, it comes from the canola fields. So uh, if you buy something in the grocery store that says, um, clover honey uh it's it's probably come from uh canola field because uh, the honey there's no there's no board that regulates what people put on their honey jars uh so if if there's like one drop of nectar from a clover plant in that jar of canola nectar then uh, it's okay to call it clover honey i also wanted to know a bit more about amanda herself and her history with bees What sparked your interest in beekeeping or first drew you in? Can you tell us about your very first time learning to beekeep? Yeah, so I mean, I've always liked honey, I've always liked flowers, but uh, it was this farmer that it was out of necessity for the apple crops that I I first got into it. I will tell you what happened the the very first day, my first experience with hives. The first experience with hives was I was with uh, the manager of Southlands Farm, and he was at his uh, beehive looking at drones. So drones are the male bees in a hive and they don't sting. But I didn't know that at the time. I was completely new to beekeeping. So he'd opened the hive and he had a drone in his hand. And he said, Amanda, open your mouth, stick out your tongue. And I did, foolishly, and he put the drone on my tongue. <laughs> so that was uh, that was my first experience. Of course, the drone didn't sting me because it couldn't. And uh, it was kind of funny. So what sparked my interest in beekeeping? The more I learned about it, the more interesting it was. So shortly after that, uh, we had a, another beekeeper come and show us how to establish a hive. And he was talking about how beekeeping is like meditation. You, the bees can read your, your feelings. So you need to be absolutely in a calm, relaxed and meditative state when you're, when you're opening a hive or else they'll, they'll react badly to you and you might get stung. So I learned a lot from this, this beekeeper who was just ex- uh, telling us about the, uh, yeah, the importance. If, you, if, you're in, if you're agitated, don't bother going near a hive. If you're, if you're hungry or you have something to do, don't, don't even bother because they, they will pick up on that and they'll notice it. And of course, the more I learn, the more interesting it is. And of course, for us, this is super exciting because it means we get a f- another hive. Amanda then told us about her most memorable experience when she was asked to come get the bees from underneath someone's deck. So I drove all the way out there with my vehicle full of empty Rubbermaid bins. And I, I went and I looked under her deck. And sure enough, actually, I had to, <laughs> I had to hack away at like the wood first. Uh, and so after I'd done that, it was a network of perfectly parallel, perfectly crafted honeycomb. And I, I believe it was about five feet by two feet running perpendicular to the deck. Underneath? Underneath or? the deck. So they, they just basically 
made this honeycomb underneath the deck. And I thought, okay, well, do I smoke them? Do I not smoke them? It was getting dark. They seemed like they were okay. They weren't too uh, aggressive. Every hive is kind of different. Some are super aggressive. Some are just passive. Didn't seem like these guys were too aggressive. So I took out my Gerber. I did put on a like a beekeeper's hat, but I wasn't wearing any other protection. And I, uh, I did, I got the smoker out. So I was smoking them a little bit. That, that interferes, smoking a beehive interferes with their communication because their communication is all through pheromones, which is like basically smell. So by putting smoke on them, if one bee says, you know, someone's interfering with the hive, they might try and communicate that to the rest of the bees, but they won't get the message if there's smoke interfering with their communication. So I did, I smoked the hive and then I took my Gerber and I cut off these five foot long by one foot deep honeycombs one by one. And as I did that, the honey was just dripping onto me like a waterfall. And I thought in my head, I thought, you know, I've done a lot of crazy things in my life, but there is nothing that compares to this. Cutting this comb off with bees crawling all over the comb and honey dripping all over you. So this was, this was just the coolest experience I've had. Um, we, I put it all in the Rubbermaid bins, uh, put the lids on. Of course, there were still bees flying all around my car as I drove back to Vancouver. But uh, we, yeah, we rescued the hive. We brought it back to the farm and uh, they established. So I think that was definitely the coolest experience I've had. At this point, I wanted to be sure I was clear about some of the terminology. Are there any other technical terms that might be helpful for our listeners? Tools, that kind of thing. In addition to nectar and pollen, bees will also collect propolis and seal off their hive with it. So propolis is coming from the resins of trees and uh, they use it to to basically yeah, glue, glue their hive together and seal it off against predators. Another really cool term is royal jelly. I think it's gotten a pretty big publicity lately, but royal jelly is a secretion from the glands of the worker bees that they feed to their larvae. So if, if you're a larvae and you get extra royal jelly, then you will develop into a queen. So um, yeah, so other terms, colony collapse is a big one. You might've heard this in the news lately where a hive will just kind of all of a sudden not be a hive anymore. It'll, it'll, uh, it'll be empty of bees. And, and that's, that's been linked to the uh, neonicotinoid pesticides that have been used. So there's a lot of, I mean, bees are really hot. They're in the news because people are realizing that we can't have food without them. And uh, there's, there's entire books that have been written, what if there were no bees? So I can recommend a, a history of bees, which kind of tells a futuristic story uh, from the perspective of our, our, our offspring who, who might not have bees. Having watched Amanda and Judith work with the bees at the farm, and the process of honey collection, I had a lot more questions about what was involved. Was this something that could be done at home? What were the material aspects of beekeeping? Well, the beekeepers that I've met are just interested in in the world, I think. What else is needed for this practice in terms of licenses, space, maybe a high tolerance for pain? (laughs) A high tolerance for pain. Yeah, I mean... 
Okay, licenses, you don't need a license. But I mean, any beekeeper before he sells you a colony uh, is going to want to make sure you know what you're doing. So there's a number of beekeeping courses you can take. You can take one at Langara College. You can join a beekeepers association. There's one in Richmond, which I'm a part of. And just to, you know, uh, talk to other beekeepers. And uh, it's a small enough community that you can learn a lot and it doesn't cost you too much. Space, I mean, you can, you can put a beehive on a roof. Um, I think there are regulations, but um, certainly in Vancouver, I've seen people with small yards and, uh, and a hive in the yard. The main thing is to understand the bees. They're, they're very, um, they're not like wasps. They're not gonna, they really won't fly on your food and start trying to eat your steak. Like, I've, I'm not sure if you've had that experience in the summer, sitting on your deck and the wasps will come and visit your plate and start chowing down. It's the worst thing about picnics in Wisconsin, where I'm from. Exactly. So wasps will do that. Honeybees will not. So um, one, of the, one of my things is when people say, oh, no, bees are so disruptive. I'm like, no, that's, that's probably wasps you're thinking about. So um, certainly... Um, Space, I'm sure there's minimum requirements, but mainly what the bees need is a, a steady access of pollen and nectar. So urban beekeeping is a big thing because there are flowers everywhere in everybody's garden. So it works out really well for bees, much better than they, it would work out if they were in a, a crop of canola, for example, that only blooms for a short few weeks in the summer, and then that's it. The, the bees have no, no food supply after that. What's the difference between native North American bees and honeybees? Like honeybees are not native to North America. They do come from Europe, but we've always had native bees here in North America. So when we're talking about planting bee-friendly flowers and, you know, you should always leave parts of your lawn wild so that the bees can nest in the ground, we're really talking about providing for the native bees, these solitary bees like mason bees that are doing a huge amount of pollinating too. As an applied linguist, I was excited to learn more about the processes of bee communication, both with each other and across species lines with their human keepers. I guess that it would be a highly multisensory, multimodal affair. I would say it's mostly through pheromones that are um, emitted by the queen. So bees communicate by smell, and uh, the queen has, a good queen will have a good control over all of her hive. And she'll, she'll for example, um, tell them if she, if she wants them to collect more pollen, if she wants them to collect more honey or nectar for honey. And um, she's very organized as well. So if you look at a hive from the inside, it's impeccably structured and immaculately clean. And that's because the queen is directing all of her worker bees to do things. Um, you'll know if a queen is not communicating properly if she lays her eggs in an unorganized manner or if the honey isn't on the outside like it's supposed to be or if the pollen isn't on the inside of the honey like it's supposed to be. And generally speaking, a poor queen will, uh, will be actually, <laughs> uh, what's the word? mutinied by her, her colony. So if, if a queen is not controlling her, her hive properly, they'll raise a new queen. They will actually make new queens and then the new queens will battle it out with the, uh, the original queen. So bees communicate through smell 
um, pheromones emitted by the queen and uh, to simplify it greatly, I'm sure. Do worker bees communicate with each other directly at all? Yeah, so there's the waggle dance, which is kind of how worker bees point to the sources of where all the good pollen and nectar is. They've, they've done an interesting study on that where they're very, they have an excellent sense of direction. I should note that I was reading a study uh, where bees were put in magnetic fields to see if it would mess with their sense of direction, and it didn't. So however bees learn, you know, this waggle dance is important. Uh, bees have incredible skills. I, I yeah. <laughs> My next question, as a beekeeper, how do you read or interpret the bees? I, I, I do everything slowly. I have to put myself into an altered state where the bees are the only thing that I see. Everything else is just kind of out in the background. So I open a hive. I'll kind of talk to myself out loud, figure out what's going on. Uh, I, I talk to them. I, I don't know if they can know my voice, but I, who knows? Last year they seem, I, I always used to talk out loud and they, uh, I didn't get stung very much. So, um, so how was were you asking about how I communicate with them, or well, um, how you how you read them oh. or understand the situation as you're working with them? Okay, so it's it's important. So, for example, um, it's silly to open a hive when it's cold outside. It's it's very risky to the bees. Bees keep their hive at about thirty seven degrees. And if it's 10 degrees outside and you open the hive, or if it's raining outside and you open a hive, that's a very mean thing to do to the bees. So bees will let you know that they don't appreciate that. And they'll do that by uh, the first thing you'll hear. So if I open a hive and the bees aren't very happy that I'm opening the hive, I'll notice right away by the sound that they make. So if I take off the lid, there's always that buzzing noise that you heard at the beginning. So this, this, uh, the hive, hive, bees buzz when they're in a hive. That sound is incredible. Um, I don't know if it's more of a sound or almost a vibration that I felt in my body, but it was very distinctive. Yes, it is. It is. And I'll, I'll never, you know, the smell of a hive as well. It's something I'll never forget. That warm, honey smell of a hive. So if I'm opening them and they don't want to be opened, they don't want that lid off, that buzz, which is just that vibration you're talking about, will increase in tone. So it'll go from zzzz, and it'll, it'll, it'll raise the pitch. So that's my first clue that I probably shouldn't be opening the hive. If, I, if, I, if I'm not listening to their request to close the lid, then they'll start to do the next phase of warning, and that is literally headbutting me. So they'll send out certain bees to ram me as hard as they can, which which can you feel it? I mean, so you're so that the next phase of go away is getting rammed by bees one by one. And okay, so if you're if you're really silly and you don't pick up on that second warning sign, then 
they'll start to um, to actually sting you. But I mean, at that point, you've had two chances, <laughs> so right. there's no need to be stung. You've you've really earned it at that point. Yeah, and and I notice they do like to sting if if I ignore their pleas, they do tend to to sting me around my head and neck. So I wonder if they're able to. Uh, to sense where my most of my heat is coming from or where maybe I'm breathing and there's carbon dioxide coming out. You mentioned the smell of, a, of an open hive earlier. Um, can you talk more about the full sensory experience of working with a hive? It's an interesting thing. They're just insects, right? But you tend to get attached to them. <laughs> so sensory experience, let's see, there's sight, so, uh, you know, they're fascinating to look at. They're beautiful creatures. Uh, there's the sound of the buzzing. There's the smell of the hive. There's the taste of honey. And there's the feel of, for example, wax on your fingers. There's the feel of maybe a bee crawling on your hand. The feel of being stung. It's a very sensory experience. And maybe that's why... Uh, why people get so into beekeeping, because it, it really does engage all of your senses. Very nice. One question about the smell. Does that sometimes let you know if there's a problem with the hive? Does it smell differently at all? Well, no. You should be checking for visual signs. For example, it's pretty easy to check for mites, um, which are kind of a, a bad um, kind of leech that lives on bees and decreases, well, it kind of deteriorates their health. Um, if a hive has died completely and there's rotting bees inside, yeah, that will smell bad. But that's, I mean, in terms of a, determining whether a hive is really healthy or not so healthy, um, I don't find the smell is, is a useful uh, parameter. Usually it's uh if you can see signs of, of problems. Having gotten some insights into the process of bee-human interaction, I was curious about how these practices are taught and learned. Yeah, so how are they passed down? I learned beekeeping from uh, Bob Fisher, who is a, uh, he's probably around 70 years old, a beekeeper in, uh, in Richmond. So he's been putting, he's been keeping bees and having hives on his blueberry farm since as for decades and decades so i think bob of course like many people kept bees for the practical purposes of pollinating his his blueberries and then he saw that it was profitable to 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 keep bees and, and then sell the colonies to to people that wanted to start beekeeping so i i'm, I'm fortunate to have learned from a real real kind of a experienced beekeeper who I imagine he learned it from from farmers as well so um, a lot of people get into beekeeping because it's trendy it's really cool and that's great too there's a recent movement that we want to understand where our food comes from and we want to get back to the earth and so some people just you know pick up beekeeping uh, you know as an urban beekeeper because it's it's really cool I didn't talk much about swarms today this seems like a fine time to do it. Tell me about swarms. <laughs> okay. So when you talk about hands-on and hands-off beekeeping, um, in the spring, if a beekeeper 
kind of, you know, if, if a hive reproduces very quickly and in large numbers, they're going to run out of space in the hive. And we had the experience last spring where we were feeding them sugar water because it was, it was a harsh winter. If you remember, there was a lot of snow and um, our new call, co- it was really hard. I saw photos on Instagram. I was out of the country at the time, but I was in the U.S. where the weather was even worse. So. Oh, okay. So we had gotten three new colonies from New Zealand, and it snowed the next day. And I'm thinking, oh, no, what do we do? Terrible luck. Oh, you know, and, and when you're a beekeeper, you always just every, the you're so aware of the weather because it's like, when it's a sunny day, you're happy because your bees are going to be happy. If it's cold, you're worried that, will they have enough food? Because bees are cold, they're insects. If it's cold, they can't move. They can't get out and forage. So you're always looking outside and saying, good, it's going to be good for my bees or bad. So uh, last spring, we had a really rough start to the season because of the snow. So as a result, we were feeding our hives sugar water. Now, I thought this was good because it was going to ensure their survival. Turns out we f- the, the sugar water made them r- the queen just get the idea that resources were infinite. She was going to lay <laughs> as many eggs as possible. And within, by May, we had to add like two more boxes onto our hive. So it's early summer and we have tons of bees in this one hive. And of course, we had a windstorm which I think started this whole thing. Anyways, the beehive swarmed. And they were just too many bees, too fast. And the queen said, we've run out of space. We've got to go. And I guess I was checking on the hives, but if I'd been more hands-on, I should have predicted it and split the hive uh, and, and made a new queen in the second hive. Uh, but I didn't. And so as a result, we had a swarm. It landed on the tree. And um, it stayed there for a couple of hours until the sun started to go down. And then the hive, the swarm in the tree decided, well, maybe it wasn't so bad in that box after all. We don't really want to find a new place to go. So the swarm, which had been sitting in the tree, actually went back to their original home and and, and had stayed there since. We actually had to add another box on top to accommodate all the bees. Well, I've only had positive responses when I when I show people the hives and the most common response that I get is people are surprised that you can have a bee crawling on your hand and it's not going to want to sting you so I really enjoy dispelling myths about nature that people have and a big one with bees is that they're just going to sting you that's what bees do I admit I had that reaction when we approached the hives on our visit and one bee got tangled up in my hair. It was very hard not to uh, not to react strongly to that. Yeah, so bees will, you know, if your hair is, you know, if they, if they fly into your head, they will be in your hair. Uh, but then they'll just get right out of there. Um, so unless you, of course, squish it with your hand. I think it's important to to kind of make people realize that that bees are not aggressive and that they're, on the contrary, performing these incredibly important roles. I think the whole idea, uh, the concept of a super organism and how they function as one, is a, it's a beautiful kind of narrative for, for people to have. 
I wanted to close the interview with a bit of reflection on the broader meanings that Amanda makes about beekeeping, bringing our conversation full circle. I think I'm very inspired by the bees and their, their constant work. And looking at a hive from day to day, you see that it's so different and it's because the bees have been working and building and collecting. And all you've done is put, a, put this queen and her brood into a wooden box. So this wooden box, which is empty and cold and sometimes dirty, is transformed by a buzzing, warm, you know, hardworking, industrious colony of bees into this productive, intricate network of honeycomb and honey, which is just the purest substance with antibiotic properties. I think that kind of making something from nothing because of hard work has been uh, a really, really inspiring thing for me. You don't need you don't need money all the time. You just need to be industrious. Uh, you know, look at what's around you, make the best of what's around you, and uh, if you're like a bee colony, you can uh, you can do well. Is there a lesson there, maybe, for people in Vancouver's rental housing market? I don't know. <laughs> yes. How would you describe the practice of beekeeping in just one word, if you could? Harmony. I think the, the, the key to a, a bee's success is harmony. Wow, okay, thank you very much. If people want to learn more about you and the practice of beekeeping, where can they go? So all of our hives are at Southlands Heritage Farm, which is uh, 6767 Balaclava Street, just south of Dunbar. And uh, we'd be happy to show you the hives. So the beekeepers are myself and Judith Buñol, and you can just wander by the property anytime. It's, it's always open and uh, say hello to our bees. And we'd be happy to show you the hives if it's a sunny day. We'll also put that information on our blog when we release this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'd like to thank Amanda, Judith, and everyone at Southlands Heritage Farm for giving us this incredible opportunity. Once again, I'm Dimitri Detweiler, and this is Multipodality. You can find us on Twitter at Multipodality, or visit us at our website at multipodality.wordpress.com to find out more about us and see some of our other podcasts. Our podcasts are also available on iTunes. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, and please share this with someone you know who might also enjoy it. Multipodality is supported by the Department of Language and Literacy Education at the University of British Columbia. Our executive producer is Kay Hare. Our production coordinator is Nina Conrad. Our social media coordinator is Lisa Navarro. Our technical coordinator is Adam Sheard. And I'm your host, Dimitri Detweiler. Thank you for listening. Whether it's a gimmick or not, I don't know. Uh, I actually tried some bee venom face cream that's supposed to prevent wrinkles. Are you sure? That sounds a little bit dodgy. It, 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 well, it, it stung my face as I put it on. But, uh, you know, <laughs> people do all sorts of things for beauty.